You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Liam Williams, uh, absolutely fascinating performer, very, very good writer. Um, that sounded the wrong way around, didn't it? A fascinating performer sounds like one you don't laugh at. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, certainly he has a fascinating uh, approach towards entry or exit from buildings, as we will hear very early on in this episode. Um, he's just fantastic. I'm sure you'll have heard his stuff before online or seen him at festivals. Um, but uh, he is really... He's someone who is making waves in comedy in a way that you go, oh, I can't. Do you remember like early Tim Key? Do you remember the, the first Tim Key show you saw when you were like, oh, what's he going to be doing in five or ten years? I've got a very similar feeling about Liam. I hope that doesn't sound too patronising. Uh, I am slightly in awe of him. This is the brilliant Liam Williams. How are you healing? Yeah, pretty, pretty well, I think. I'm going to hospital today to physio for a checkup um you're referring to the fact that i had two broken heels i still have two broken heels one of which is almost entirely healed now the right one but the left one remains uh slightly broken i've got 10 pins and a metal plate in my heel and i'm now at the rehab phase trying to build up strength again because obviously uh it was out of use for so long so the muscles atrophy and the ligaments and whatever else were all damaged and um sort of spoiled and so now i'm I'm doing lots of heel raises and and kind of s- twisting my ankle around and uh swimming and stuff trying to build it up so but i'm still walking with a bit of a limp and how did you do you mind telling us how you know i don't mind injuries at all I'm, I'm doing this i've now turned it into a bit of stand-up so i'm going to be careful to i don't want to sound like i'm reciting yeah, that script so i'm sure. going to tell it in a very unfunny way yeah good. uh, uh on friday the 13th of november i locked myself out of the flat i was going to feed the neighbor's cat downstairs this, this flat, where we window. are right now yeah. this window we're sitting right next to will become well n- this is not good for the listeners but for you you can get you can see uh where this this accident took place yeah uh i locked myself out and I tried to climb back in and I climbed up to where we are now, this level, first story, and I was hanging from that window to the side. 
I might take My pictures window. of this yeah, because sure. this is staggeringly high up. I mean, it's only first floor, but already when I realised, oh, it was this window. Yeah, it's pretty high up. Man. Oh, this height. Yeah, it was. If you look on the other side of the street, um, yeah, the window above the sort of doorway, and and you see this kind of elegant masonry that the doors have yes, here. Yes, I use that as well. It looks. Yeah, it, well, it is climbable. I know yeah. that definitively, but I only know <laughs> that it's climbable when drunk. This yes. time, I was sober, and I think that was the. That, that was the rub you've and climbed in before while drunk. drunk oh yeah like oh, effortlessly okay. just kind of jumped in it feels confident. like confident yeah crazily and I'm sort of so right I'll finish the story so I was almost into the window I had my hand I feel like I had my hand on my bed like I was that close almost home and dry and I lost my grip and fell down to the ground to the concrete and I didn't have any shoes on and um Turned out I broke both my calcaneus bones, which is the heel bone, just bad bone to break. Um, and uh, I was in hospital for three weeks. I couldn't put any weight on my, my feet and I had to have surgery. And it's the kind of injury where they don't give you a definitive prognosis of what's okay. going to happen because they don't want to, because it's such a, there's such uncertainty about the outcome. So I was left really just in hospital doing a lot of Googling of this injury and reading sort of horror stories of people's outcomes and quotes such as um, this injury can spell the end of a man's industrial career um, and I haven't got an industrial career <laughs> but what if I wanted to have one one day yeah. um, at least it might be a major diminishment in my mobility that was my fear but now six months on I'm kind of wandering around hobbling around and um, I, I count myself pretty lucky Um my uh, Tim Key said to me, you know, because we had been out drinking one night and I'd started climbing up on some scaffolding and he sort of had his, he was tearing his hair out and he said to me, um, latterly, I think this might, you know, it's not a good thing, obviously, but in some peculiar way, uh, it might have been a helpful thing to happen at the right time in your life, a kind of serious wake up call about reckless behavior yeah that isn't too damaging but is damaging enough to to make you think differently about these I, things i in feel future. like i should just insert a little public safety like the comedians comedian podcast does not uh, sanction drunkenly climbing on scaffolding no and i'm a i'm a good case study for I, you know, how do you why, how do you, you feel about it now do you feel like uh do you feel that you were an idiot do you feel stupid for having yeah. done it? do you feel like a bit of a legend <laughs> no i don't feel like a legend and i feel like an idiot but i'm not beating myself up about it. I feel like all the beating up has been done. Okay. Um, as a matter of course. And yeah, I feel idiotic. I mean, weirdly, I've, I have a very distinct memory of like, as I was crawling back into the flat, crawling up into the hallway, I think just that earlier that day or that week. You had, so you were on your own at the time. You had to crawl back into the flat in order to get help. Yeah. I had, okay. It's such a complicated story. This is part of the problem that, or, or the logistics are kind of complicated. I was feeding the neighbor's cat, so I had the neighbor's keys. So I had the keys to the building, but not the keys to my flat. So I could crawl back into the uh, to the house, to the hallway. Um, anyway, I, and I think that day, maybe I'd been having some conversation with my ex or just kind of daydreaming about um, having a baby. Uh, and I was like, I think now the next stage, I'm like ready to become a father and stuff. And as I was crawling back in, I was like, no. Nah. Just imagining, like, if I did have a, a family, like, just what the reaction would be of, like, a, a dad who did something like that. And, you know, I had a, a, about the same week as 
this has only just come to my mind. It was when I was doing my Soho Theatre run of my of Bonfire Night, my last stand-up show. It was coming to the final week of that run. Only a few nights earlier, I'd been getting the bus home from the Soho, stayed out, probably had too much to drink, and I saw a fella running by really fast, uh, and then a, a guy chasing him being like, stop, stop him, uh, thief. And I, like, chased down the first guy, and uh, there it was some drug deal that had gone awry, and the guy had tried to run off with the other guy's money. And I think that the guy went, uh, uh, are you undercover? As in undercover police? Yeah. And I went, I'm not telling you, you just... <laughs> just, just stand against the wall. So I don't think he was physically intimidated by me, but just the kind of shock of uh, a, a stranger Involving joining himself. in, right, yeah. kind of um, halted him. Um, but so, yeah, I was probably in, in, engaging in like just reckless feats of behavior. Almost there was probably a build up to this. And in the in the two years before uh, this injury, I think I've broken four bones, always self-inflicted, sort of punching walls and kicking walls and drunken mishaps so perhaps it's the hopefully the culmination of a of a kind of period of um you know idiotic recklessness if not that maybe it's a marker on the way to your how old are you you're past 27 i guess I'm 28 now yeah yeah okay yeah. so right, right that's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah and i only turned 28 in march so that incident fell kind of really quite cleanly dicey. within that yeah. within that year yeah yeah so it does feel like and I don't want to bang on about the, the incident too much, but it does feel like it sort of suits you. Like when I heard that you had done this. <laughs> right. Do you see how I mean? Um, and, yeah. and to be fair, I don't know you personally all that well. And I, I've got to be wary of... Uh, well, no, I mean, it could be quite interesting to kind of frame you sure. within the, the live version of yourself, yeah. the persona you present, specifically in stand-up. I know you have other lots of um, performative and writing uh, and directing strands as well. Um, but the the kind of uh, depressive, kind of reluctant stand-up that you appear to be on stage is that fair? Do you think you you yeah. you have you, you I think you quite deliberately mm. and I dare say enjoy portraying the kind of the negative, the loneliness. You're, you're very articulate about depression, and you know a lot of your a lot of the picture you paint is you in a flat alone with no possessions, Googling stuff. You're Googling yourself or, you know, look at YouTube or something like that. That kind of person, we can kind of imagine that person having befalling a, a kind of a, a not even drunken injury. Yeah. yeah. It seems to suit you somehow. Um, Do you see just I, I take that. I, I understand that. I think what was funny was that the way that the rumour got kind of, or the story got mangled and kind of <laughs> okay. um, altered by its circulation round the circuit or whatever or my friendship group so that when people were coming up to me people were saying oh, i heard you jumped off a jumped off a building or like um uh fell fell from a loft and like the story was kind of altered to suit people telling it to you know a, a kind of in different interpretations of my of my character um but i think i like i, I like to think the fact that i was helping a neighbor's cat uh, I, was, I was feeding a neighbor's cat and um, I made a stupid decision. So, you know, I'm a, I think I'm a kind person deep down, but also, well, what is it? It's a stu it's an act of stupidity, right? That, I don't know. I don't know how that fits with the, the kind of depressive articulate, supposedly articulate thing, uh, except that there's an edge of a willful self-destructiveness about it. 
Which, yes. Which, <laughs> yes, con- I think so, yeah. Which, which concerns me a, a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's almost... Uh, like part of me sort of thinking, oh, and you who's trying to help someone, uh, trying to help a neighbour's cat, so it's sort of helping in a way that feels not inconsequential, but sort of arguing. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. you're not helping someone no, out no. of a burning building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are elements the which, by which I'm already kind of my mind's racing, going, yeah, that's even more perfect for Liam. That's even more perfect. And I'm right. just wondering why I think that. I wonder if maybe it's because your persona is so rich that details like that, I think, could easily be swept up along with an understanding of it to to seem more meaningful yeah maybe maybe yeah there was one sort of theory that i think is kind of silly um but the sort of classic uh overwrought freudian interpretation might be that i caused myself this injury so that i literally couldn't stand up and uh, (laughs) didn't have to do stand up for a while because i was getting i was finding it tricky that last those last few shows um, I don't know how much I I buy into that, but having some time off definitely helps. And now I'm back and enjoying it more. I want to I want to circle the word overwrought and come back. To <laughs> All right, <that>. yeah. <laughs> but tell me about not enjoying it. I think from the outside you have had a pretty glittering first five years. Would you say? It feels like uh, you you started your. So for people that don't know you, you uh, you're also a member of a, a sketch group, Sheeps. Yep. Uh, who are excellent. I really enjoy your Thanks. work. And you yourself uh, have, you received a good bit of critical acclaim. I was digging up reviews of your, and apologies if you don't involve yourself with the review process. Do you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the two, uh, the two non-glowing reviews you received last year, <laughs> both opened with the sentence, one of the most original comic voices in contemporary comedy. Three stars. Right. One of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. no, that yeah. was hilarious. I was retweeting those ones last year. The sort of <laughs> the hyper, the sort of laudatory hyperbole sitting next to a, a sort of three star uh, yes. evaluation was quite fun. I right? had a similar experience that actually uh, I, I, I or my reviewer won the ham fisted award for the most for the worst review. Uh, because of you. It, yeah, because yeah. it was the worst review of anyone. Obviously, right. the award. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't yeah. set, you, up set up my own award. award. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was a similar sort of a thing. I think probably it's as well that yours didn't get submitted because it, it is actually worse in, in the way that you are kind of, you know, one of the finest comic voice at three stars. It's just mm. astonishing. Well, maybe that uh, is a good way of sort of thinking about, or me trying to think about why um, I wasn't enjoying it as much because feel like I was kind of being ambitious still and like trying hard and working hard on my show but I just found it kind of frustrating to do like I was trying to think of a sort of metaphor or an idiom that doesn't sound incredibly pretentious sort of uh, it felt more like swimming against the tide or something or, or just it just felt harder doing the show to get, I think the review you're talking about probably was the one that said it's all well and good, you know, articulate, interesting, original, but maybe just not as funny as, as you'd want it to be. And that's definitely how I felt last year. Uh, partly I knew that going into it, like this, maybe this is going to be an angrier show or a more honest show or a more challenging show. But also, I, you know what, I think I would have liked it to have been funnier. Um, and when you're up there in Edinburgh and you're sort of doing a show that you don't love doing, that that's an interesting question and one that I, I like trying to glean from other people on your podcast is like how much people enjoy doing stand-up i don't i don't know if there's there's a um a correct 
amount of enjoyment you're supposed to take from it. But I think last year I wasn't enjoying it enough, really. So that just makes me think I need to take a little bit of, not time off it altogether, but just not do a new show this year mm-hmm. and wait till I get the the desire back, I think, and the the sense of um, fun back, I think. What were the most enjoyable, if you think of enjoying yourself on stage, which bit of material gives you the most pleasure? Um, I've never, I'd, I'd say... <laughs> I, <laughs> Miserablest Liam Williams struggles I, to come up with a bit of yeah, enjoyment. I talked, <laughs> when I, I, I kind of, I think I've never really, really enjoyed doing stand-up. But I'd say the more kind of set-piece set piece e bits that I do um, whether I don't know say like the time out bit from my first show mm. or the, the wor- dating dating advice yeah dating yeah day. or the World Cup song from my second show where it's kind of I mean obviously the second being a song and the first being sort of music comes on and I read from a, a page um, just when I feel quite like I'm ent- I'm just getting inside a set piece and just riding it for three minutes and I know the the jokes are regular and it always goes down well, that comes close to enjoyment. But when it's kind of looser stand-up, um, uh, it's harder work. That's, that's really interesting to hear because your, your stand-up is certainly in that, in that first show, and I didn't see the second, I'm afraid, but I saw your third. And um, in, the, in the first show... The, it was almost American-style comedy in that it was lots of sequential one-liners that were great jokes in their own right and led led on from one another. Right. So the idea, as as a, a joke peddler myself, you know, I, I don't tend to have set pieces. It's just me and a mic. And so the bits that I feel most comfortable in are sort of similar. Like I've got a bit in my new show about the riddle of the fox and the chicken and the bag of the oh, brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, and that, when I start doing that bit, part of me goes, oh, it's, yeah. it's going to be fine for the next few minutes Definitely, now. yeah. So I think I that might that be feeling. a similar sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, But so, so what is it? Is it that you feel um, more vulnerable when you are without the confines of a set piece? Because um, with, with your, like, your, the opening, you know, the universe explodes joke that you used to open with, mm. that is a, not, it's a great joke. And, and well, so thanks. why wouldn't you feel as confident doing that great joke in the next five great jokes after it um i've i now worry that i've i've i'm not being it's not correct to say that i i like set pieces and i don't like stand-up sure but perhaps there's a broader thing happening where i'm i'm i think i mean i enjoy doing stuff where there's more uh maybe more of a mask on possibly and when i'm just standing there literally quite bare-faced to the audience talking as myself uh i'm finding that harder to do and when it's when it's more um although that said i'm now telling this story about falling down breaking my heels and i'm really enjoying telling that because that feels uh recent and honest and relevant to my life currently so actually there's no real rhyme or reason to when i enjoy it or i don't i don't think 
couldn't you just listen to his voice all day? I'm not trying to give you the impression that my fiance fancies his voice uh, or that we've had conversations about whether or not fancying someone's voice is the same as fancying them. But God, what a voice. This is Liam. We'll get back to those uh, soothing Garforth tones in just a second. I hope you're enjoying this one as much as I enjoyed uh, having the conversation. I'm very pleased that Liam is uh, still alive. I hope he hasn't attempted any further uh, building site type parkour explorations uh, acrobatics uh, in the week since we talked um, but uh, loads more great stuff to come and uh, and some really interesting appraisals of the differences between writing for comedy and sitcom uh, writing for stand-up and sitcom and whether or not he actually likes doing stand-up so lots more great stuff to come from Liam uh, and I'm going to very quickly I'll waffle at you at the end if you fancy hanging around for that but um, uh, just a couple of very quick things thank you for your donations ladies and gentlemen there have been some uh, some very lovely messages accompanying uh, the latest raft of donations. So thank you. I, maybe not a raft, maybe uh, uh, a little matchstick boat or some poo sticks. Who can say? And um, what people are tending to say, I've noticed over the last uh, few weeks and months, is, hey, I finally got round to donating. So thank you to all those who finally did. Um, and if you are like them, someone who is sitting listening, going, well, I always mean to donate. I just I just never get round to it. But maybe it's uh, maybe I'd maybe I'd feel good about myself if I donate. Maybe I'd feel good to be supporting this wonderful podcast. Then, of course, now is uh, the time. There's no time like the present. Uh, and these days, rather than just donating, I mean, you can set up, as we know, a recurring payment of uh, one, two, five, or ten pounds. I think I also set a, a setting for a hundred pounds a month. I think if anyone did uh, use that, I would have to. The system would break. <laughs> I would break emotionally. Um, I don't know. I mean, the podcast is worth a lot. What price can we put on on the monthly or weekly value of the show? That's probably a little high. It was kind of a joke. But I'm kind of mentioning it anyway, just in case any deranged millionaires are out there. Oh, which reminds me, um, if that if the phrase the deranged millionaire means anything to you, I'm chasing up a lead. So uh, if it doesn't, don't worry about it. And if it does, quietly begin getting maybe excited. Um, so what was I saying? Yes, so you, you don't, you can do the recurring payments as we know. You can do your one-off payments, £10, £20, £50, a pound a show, ladies and gentlemen. What is this? We're up near the 170s, aren't we now? So um, uh, that would be uh, very happily received. But if you wanted to get something for your money besides a sense of personal satisfaction and, and well-being, then you know that you can also purchase uh, my 2014 comedy album, Extra Life. Uh, you can get that from comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. Uh, I've had uh, a lot of people have bought that and said very nice things. It's on sale for three quid, but you can use that as your opportunity to donate and hoof up that price if you'd like. Um, and of course, at comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop, you can download Break Glass in case of emergency. Uh, and if you're enjoying Break Glass, I know a lot of you are, I've had a lot of very uh, positive feedback on that. You can tell me so at ComComPod on Twitter with the hashtag Break Glass. Um, I, you know, there might also be a secret hashtag if you if you knew about one, but if you if you didn't, then hashtag Break Glass is more than sufficient. Uh, and why not tell other people about it? It's there for you. It's free. Yes, you have to join the mailing list to get it. And yes, that will require three easy 
but long-winded. They don't take a long time, but they are necessarily long-winded. I can only apologise. Three little steps to get hold of your free copy of Break Glass in case of emergency. That is an injection of optimism, a little compilation album from some of the most upbeat and optimistic things said about surviving tough gigs, remaining creative, not being jealous, those kind of positive things. I could certainly have done with listening to it recently. I'll tell you all about that in the waffle if you care to hang around. Um, but you can also get that from comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. So we'll get right back on it in a second. I've got some lovely previews coming up on the 8th of uh, June. That's next Wednesday. Uh, I'm going to be previewing at Top Secret. I'm also doing a show uh, headlining at Dehems for a show called Showbiz Baby, which I'm really looking forward to. I've got a preview at the Bread and Roses in Clapham, uh, the Clapham Common on Clapham Manor Street, I believe. Uh, that's on Thursday the 9th of June that'll be a lot of fun uh, if you're in Wales you can see me at Glee Cardiff over next weekend the 10th and 11th um, other little previews here and there hey if you want to join the Facebook group you can jump on that now join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group it's a closed group but uh, I normally get around to adding you within a few days unless you're a robot and even then sometimes I add you um, but you can chuck me your questions for this is the latest raft of people who are coming up on the show send me your questions quick as you like for Wendy Wason Shappy Corsandi John Robbins and Mr. Todd Barry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's a couple of other people coming as well, but I'm not going to mention their names until they are absolutely nailed in. And listen, every so often I say via a, a, a series of different social media uh, channels, hey, does anyone know this person? Why don't we just have this as a sort of blanket invite? If you're uh, in the industry somehow, or maybe you know someone, uh, maybe your pals, maybe you cut the hair of a... Well, maybe not cutting the hair, but maybe you're the uh, close blood relative uh, of a comedian that you would like to hear on the show, chuck me an email, info at comedianscomedian.com, and uh, suggest being able to set something up. I think a lot of the time, I can go through people's agents and managers, but that sort of reduces me to being just another tiny fish nibbling for a bit of that dead footskin action. That's not a metaphor I'm pleased with. Um, and I don't want to be that guy. So it's much more useful to me if you have a personal connection with someone uh, and can go, hey, Stu, do you want, you know, I'm, uh, I happen to be Billy Connolly's grandfather. Can you, do you want him? Do you want me to tickle him up uh, and, and ask him about the show? That's a much better way to have someone who knows the person go, hey, this is, this is a thing I love that I think you'd enjoy. And um, it's just a lot more credible. So if you have any contacts like that, please do email me first before you go about randomly inviting uh, a cast of weirdos but info at comedianscomedian.com um, so join the Facebook group to pass on those questions and I was just telling you about one if I got sort of I'll see you at Glastonbury I'm on the cabaret uh, emceeing the cabaret stage as uh, as I often do on the Sunday of Glastonbury and if you're going to the festival just get yourself along to the theatre and circus there's loads more stuff going on there than you could possibly believe who else? I, I wanted to mention one... Oh, I'm going to be at ARG. If you're going to be at ARG Festival, come and see the show. I'm on uh, lunchtime on the Sunday, and then that evening I'm on the Battersea Barge doing another one. It's all a bit London-centric at the moment, isn't it? I'm sorry, I've got a baby. Leave me alone with my baby. Um, I'm going to be... Oh, that's going to be great. I'm not going to tell you about that until it's officially in the can. Uh, there's one thing in September that I hope I'm doing sounds like I might be uh, and I am definitely going back to the Montreal Comedy Festival I am trying I'm doing my best shall I even say their names this is my hit list okay I have contacted Russell Peters Sarah Silverman 
Brian Regan. I would very, very happily talk to any of those three wonderful, wonderful comedians. Um, if you know of anyone else that's going to be in Montreal, let me know. If you yourself are listening in Montreal, stranger things have happened, uh, perhaps you can help hook me up with some recording space so that if I do manage to pounce on E.G. Russell Peters, I'm not saying, hi, Russell, can you come and sit in my hotel room? Because that may turn him off. Um, that's everything I need to tell you for now. I'll be back with you uh, to chat to you very briefly and then at slight, slightly more length. After we get back to Liam William. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You seem a yeah. very, very confident writer, um, even if what you're writing about is a feeling of inadequacy or, or insecurity. Yeah. I, Do you feel like what you have to say is worth saying? Well, sometimes, hopefully, ultimately, by the time I've managed to to get something together and started saying it on stage I do think it's worth saying but um, I'm definitely plagued by that feeling of nothing I have to say is worth saying as part of a I think a bigger phenomenon that um, I, I'm impressed how long how long I've managed to go without saying it existential <laughs> a bigger sort of existential um, niggle uh, of like um, that that sort of extends to life, social life, and you know relationships with other people. Whereas I, I'm 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 not valuable as a person. I'm not worth much as a person. And uh, then when I start thinking about my work and my stand up and stuff, I think I can get into thinking, oh, it's it's rubbish, and um, the things I try to, I'm not good at it, and uh, I try and the things I try and say or come up with are, are frivolous and, and stupid or by turns frivolous and stupid and then sometimes or pretentious and um, pseudo-intellectual and stuff. So yeah, I'm often or have been beset by those kind of self-doubts that plague me in my general life and also in my kind of creative life. But I think I'm getting better at spotting my patterns and knowing when I'm um, spiraling into sort of negative delusions of uh I, I would have irrelevant. thought... I would have thought that for someone as critically acclaimed as yourself, someone as, as broadly well reviewed, nominated for things, that that kind of you know, you're one you're one of those guys. I would have thought that and I'm trying to speak for the majority of the listenership, perhaps. Hmm. One would have imagined that we we would have imagined that you can't not believe in yourself when everyone's telling you how great you are. Um well uh firstly not everyone's telling me how great I am. Far from it. So, like, as you said in that um, 
at the beginning, those reviews um, kind of quite boldly stated, you know what, um, this is maybe not as funny as it should be, or it's uncomfortable to watch, or it's just somehow not quite working as comedy. I'm often, um, yeah, grappling with that idea. But you never, you never receive the criticism... Yeah, this is you know what's the point of this, right? No, do you know what, what I mean? Like, yeah, like those those negative reviews already the exception to the rule. Mm. Both start. He's a fascinating, unique comic voice. Yeah, do you see what I mean? I think for a while I was obs- I I became obsessed with like reading not only all the reviews but all the like things about written about me on forums. Not that there are that many, but the few things or or like YouTube comments and stuff. And there are plenty there of uh, just accusations of complete. Um, it's just pointlessness sure you know this guy is this is nothing uh this isn't comedy or whatever uh but and i don't look at those really anymore because i feel like there's just there is just a baseline of like people will hate just trashing stuff on on in comments and stuff um yeah Mm, well yeah i guess i um rightly or wrongly sort of set out every time to go just as long as no one says this is unoriginal or or pointless or cliched then i'll have achieved something and hopefully if they can say it's engaging and funny and meaningful then that would be great too and those specific terms under which you it might be argued that you define success like as long as it isn't cliched or pointless or unoriginal what is it in you that is driving you to make sure the stuff is relevant and original and uncliched. What is it? What does it satisfy in you to think I've made an original thing? Well, maybe my first kind of driving urge is not necessarily to to just do something that's like original and like nothing anybody's ever seen before. Because then perhaps I'd be more in a, a, a I'd be maybe a more flamboyant performer and would sort of have would be more stylish maybe and would have uh, would almost be a performance artist. If I was just a formal innovator, or if I were a formal innovator, I think more. I think my impulse comes from like if I'm if I've got an anxiety or a difficulty, or I'm struggling to get my head around something, or um, I'm troubled psychologically in some way. Then I'm like, I want to turn that into comedy. So if something is difficult about life or my apprehension of the world, that's where I think there's probably comedy in this. Because you, because successfully turning that into comedy would make it worthwhile. Yeah, it would help a bit in um, dealing with it. And I feel not all comedy is is like this, but a lot of comedy sort of comes from that place of taking something that's difficult or scary or a bit incomprehensible or just annoying and sort of allowing the viewer or the listener or the audience to kind of laugh at it and thereby by sort of um, remove some of its power somehow or you know it's it's a um, yeah it's difficulty it's potency yeah I'm just interested in how that a reductive simplicity that's an interesting concept because I, I suppose I I'm just wondering about what are the conditions that create a Liam Williams <laughs> uh, um, well I I mean I sort of indulge myself in these almost uh, answering interview questions in my own head about these things and now I've actually been asked the question I feel a bit (laughs) shy of answering it Um, but the basic facts do you mean the sort of basic facts of my 
upbringing or whatever? The basic facts and maybe your interpretation of your 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 then interpretation of those facts. Like, give you right. an example. Yeah. I hated school almost wholesale. There were one or two good bits, but I, I hated it for years. Right. And in later years, I realised that oh, a lot of people I went to school with, I have very few friends I'm still in touch with from then, but a, a lot of them really didn't mind it at all. And it's like sort of the the kind of the ogres that exist in mm. my memory. Mm. They just it was water off a duck's back. They really had a really yeah. enjoyable time. So it made me reappraise it and go, oh, actually, I did hate it. That was a genuine thing. But maybe mm. what I was hating was my my kind of contemporary understanding of it. Mm. I was I, I was hating choices, terrible choices that I was making without realizing it. Mm. That kind of thing. That's how you. That's how one would create a Stuart Goldsmith. Right. I mean? So the sort of apparent facts of your upbringing and then. Well, thinking about your interpretation of them. That is exactly how you would explain yeah. in far fewer words, with more greater <laughs> articulacy, what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, the apparent fact. Well, um, grew up in Leeds in a fairly um, nice suburb, a sort of working class, lower middle class town called Garforth, which is a kind of commuter town into Leeds. It had been a kind of industrial town previously and there used to be a coal mine there but it got shut down hundreds like a hundred years ago this was not like an 80s closure of a mine um but now populated probably like half by like um like laborers and uh factory workers and stuff and half by like professional classes and my parents were both civil servants relatively um relatively low level i guess um worked for the or still work for the inland revenue uh, is this too much detail? No, no, this is, no, this is okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, um, you know, not, they, I, I like, there's a Mike Skinner quote on, on his upbringing of his, like, he calls himself Barrett class, you know, the streets, yeah. the guy, you know, and the kind of landscape to the streets, Barrett class, people who grew up on like Barrett's or Wimpy estates, um, not exactly poor, but not much money about either. It was that kind of thing. So uh, pleasant upbringing. Good parents, like devoted parents, but possibly clouds of anxiety and depression kicking around a little bit, I think, that kind of maybe came from uh, my granddad a little bit. Uh, But I don't want to go into that in too much detail, and it wasn't anything like traumatic or horrific, but there was possibly that in the air. Um, But nonetheless, really good, nice, hardworking parents. School, um, when I went to secondary school for the first few years there, I remember feeling like quite lonely maybe didn't have many friends felt the whole thing was very austere like the fourth episode of my radio show is a kind of um i wanted it to feel like a kafkaesque kind of dystopia like transforming the kind of school environment into a kind of kafkaesque bureaucratic oh, prison I look, environment I look forward to hearing that one yeah uh, that's how it felt for a while and then when i hit so so i felt just for the first few years of my adolescence quite lost and quite empty quite hopeless couldn't really see what which is probably quite a classic adolescent experience. Couldn't see what was ever going to be good about life. And then somehow, like, mid-adolescence, I think I had a bit of a cultural awakening. Maybe I, I found, I don't know, The Streets, but also, like, Monty Python, Private Eye, stuff like that. I was, like, finding the things I was interested in. You know, to be honest, started smoking weed, and where when now I wouldn't glorify it at all or even uh, advocate it. I think it did open something up in me and I became more creative, creatively engaged and started reading books and felt more alive and then just like found more friends and found girls and life suddenly became quite romantic and exciting. And then possibly um, for the last couple of years of my adolescence, 
uh, maybe as a result of just hormones or possibly because of um, weed habits had like again quite classic teenage like anger issues and big like fallouts with my parents and uh, was possibly a bit less happy until I went off to university so on the whole probably a fairly classic northern lower middle class suburban upbringing and do you think that you that your your stand-up persona inhabits those earlier years more than it does your current life well definitely the first show that was very that was like deliberately like um a teenager who who never really grew up who gained a sort of adults vocabulary and sort of um general working knowledge of the world but hasn't like emotionally matured um and then i guess my persona's changed a little bit and i I felt like i was maybe i didn't really know what my persona was in the last show it was often just felt like kind of shouting and getting angry and um i'd slightly lost focus with it and now um as i said about telling the story about my my heels I don't. I don't feel like there's much persona there. I just feel like I am being myself, and I know the self is always a sort of constructed thing, and there's always a persona even in real life. But I'm not approaching it with any like conscious characterization. Um, but as I say, I'm gonna maybe take a year off putting a stand-up show together, and when I next come to it, it'll be interesting to see um, like what my persona is. I was going to talk about sheeps for a little while, but before we do, you went to Cambridge yeah, and were in Footlights. And yeah. I feel like I know nothing about Cambridge and Footlights or the Oxbridge kind of thing, that the, the machine by which uh, uh, pe- bright young people help one another and then I suppose something happens whereby, like uh, yeah, at college, you know, they, um, how, am I, how am I saying this? I'm on the outside of that, mm. and I'm very aware that there is a tendency to go, oh, Oxbridge, Oxbridge is all a big boys' club. Yeah, it's absolutely. all, a, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. then they all go on and be producers and give oh. each other jobs. And I don't subscribe to that, but I do think there's probably a value in being at university with other like minded people who want to make comedy, and you're making comedy together all the time. Yeah. What is the, what was, how many years ago that was for you? Five, six years ago? Yeah, six. Take about six years yeah. since I left. Yeah. What was what was the the culture like at that time? Does I imagine that Footlights must exist in a kind of a every person here was desperately excited by Monty Python and we all want to be the next <laughs> ones. Is that and that's just um, my that's just from the outside. I think that was definitely my uh, stance on it. But the, I think the probably cooler, more thoughtful people look at Monty Python. I'm talking probably about Al and Jono from Sheeps who were in my year. Okay. We met there and started doing stuff together. They they approach or think about Monty Python with a, a healthy detachment, as in it was brilliant in its day, but we shouldn't be like trying to copy that kind of thing. Um, Footlights, I think I'd heard of it before I went to uni. I was pretty intimidated when I turned up in general. Um, I'd never really met people, like many of the people there, um, just by how posh they were or how intelligent they were by dint of how posh they were or, or how intelligent they were or how, or the fact that they were from the, the south and therefore had different accents it was that sometimes that level of um feeling apart from people um anyway i sort of got my got my shit together a little bit and there was this footlights thing they were putting on shows 
pretty regularly. They had a pantomime on, I think, and I saw a poster for it. And I even, I didn't even dare to go and watch the show. That's how self-conscious and um, self-doubting I was. I was like, I'm not even good enough, cool enough to go and watch this show. And I think my na- the guy I lived next to in college, a really weird guy uh, called Greg, a great guy. I remember one day someone said to him, Greg, what do you, what is your ambition? He was like what I wanted to be at the time, like just bold. It was from the Midlands, so he wasn't posh or anything. I think he was from a state school as well, and but he just had conviction. And uh, he answered this question by saying, I want my own TV show, my own TV comedy show. And I was like, that's what I, okay, that's my ambition now as well. <laughs> and then he must have said, hey, have you heard of this thing, The Footlights? We should audition a sketch. And we had, um, we'd been, there was a, there was a, again, so many of the reference points here are going to feel stupid and arcane. Uh, college porters, who are like fellas who sit on the deck. They're like sort of, like a port, like a hotel porter, I guess. Kind of like a receptionist, but they're given a kind of status as almost like a college policeman. Okay. Um, and there was, and they were involved in this thing um, called Suicide Watch, which I don't know how real it was, whether it was slightly mythic but during exam term there would be a suicide watch scheme where anybody who was deemed to seem particularly stressed or like they were struggling would be uh, monitored uh, supposedly by the porters and there was covertly one, i don't know probably okay. it was a really healthy like pastoral sure. um like considered means of like checking in with people and stuff but in a, like we found the idea in a probably quite dark way um funny that it was just porters watching you like through the window or turning up in the night just to check you're still alive kind of thing and there was a porter um who worked in our college who i think possibly was going a bit senile and like once hit a student with a ruler and stuff like he was maybe not quite right uh mentally um but we had an impression of he sort of had a voice like this and he was very disapproving of everything all the time and we took a lot of relish in doing impressions of him and then made this sketch about him turning up in the night in this girl's room and being he was like supposed to make her room suicide proof but he made it more uh dangerous by being like well when you're in the bath it's nice to relax with a piece of toast and i've got a nice toaster for you to have in your bathroom and it's just stupid jokes like that which nonetheless stupid though they were went down quite well when we tried them out for the footlights we did the show and we got our sketch in and that feeling of being on stage and people laughing at it was just like, it was a rush. And um, so that's how I started doing it. And then I've gone on quite long-windedly without even... Your question was, what was the culture, yes. I guess? In, in to, amongst the other people who wanted mm. to be comedians there. Like, what, is Footlights, as in your memory, was it a place where everyone was like, well, a, a couple of guys from Footlights every year seem to do quite well on telly five years from now? So... Yeah, I think there was a bit of that. There was a mo- there was a sort of keeping tabs on the people who had left one, two, three, four, five, ten years before you. Okay. Um, and I don't, but I don't remember there being. There's no. Okay, so in answer to your question about like um, uh, the idea that it, they all all the footlights meet each other and then they they turn into producers and give each other jobs like that has not happened <laughs> at all, as far as I know. Nobody who used to be in Footlights has ever given me any work uh, in in TV, at least I don't think. And um, but definitely, what is the case is the kind of 
well, you get a sense of, if not entitlement, but you kind of get a sense of self-belief from it. Yeah. You're like, I'm a footlight. That means something. Uh, you get just the opportunity to go on stage like once a week in front of 200 people and a generally receptive audience and kind of hone your craft and the resources that you get that probably other universities don't get and certainly people who aren't at university don't get are, are insane. And uh, yeah, I feel very lucky for that. But I think there's an awareness generally of, I think there's a culture in Footlights of one, not wanting to seem posh or distant or rarefied and wanting to like get it. Like so many people from Footlights leave and go to the Fringe and do a free Fringe show and go to London and do open mics. And I think there's a great willingness and acceptance that you've got to go in at the bottom of the ladder like everybody else. I didn't know anybody and don't know anybody who was there after me who has either expected to or managed to just like jump up the ladder because they were in footlights let's bring it back to sheeps so and and i don't want to i don't want this to be the sheeps podcast because the guys aren't here and it would be good to to get them here for yeah, that somewhere great. down the line yeah, yeah. but let's talk about you as a stand-up in relation to working in a team i think in sheeps your persona as a team member, is very similar to your persona as a stand-up. Would you say so? Um, yes. Again, the personas have changed a little bit over the years, but definitely in the first Sheep Show, I was the sort of person presenting the sketches and talking to the audience. Um, is that what you mean? Or... Um, yes, I suppose I, I don't mean anything specific. I'm just sort right. of saying, hey, you as a stand-up, in light of you in Sheeps, discuss. Okay, yeah. It's the laziest type of questioning <laughs> I do. <laughs> Presumably try. you think some stuff about that. Please yeah. go for it. <laughs> I'll try my best. Um, yeah, um, I think in Sheeps I can be sillier and stupider and... Um, the general, like, there have been interesting occasions where, like, we've done double header, especially like Edinburgh previews. We'll be at a, a festival or a, or something, and um, I'll be on first, and then Sheeps are on. And it could be the kind of gig where I've the, the, the I've not fully worked out what I'm doing and left everybody with a, quite a heavy sense of ennui or um, depression after the show because I haven't kind of peppered it enough with levity so um it's kind of a bleak uh, atmosphere at the end and then i'll be like and please stick around for sheeps and often i've had to kind of qualify it with that look it's really different from this <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't enjoyed this then you'll probably enjoy sheeps <laughs> yeah. so at times they felt and, and at the same time if you have enjoyed this i'm sure you'll enjoy sheeps yeah. <laughs> well maybe not i don't know um but at times they felt quite um like different beasts or at different ends of of a spectrum somehow um, but both things, especially Sheeps, I think, has, has um, jumped up and down that spectrum over the years as to whether it's silly and light and playful or whether it's a bit darker and weirder. Um, and now we're not, again, we haven't given up doing Sheeps, but we're not doing a new show this year. We're trying to sort of work together more, um, doing TV and video stuff, I guess, and pursuing our own projects. So now when we do Sheeps, it's, we generally do a sort of best of show at like Mac mm -hmm. uh, the secret we call it the secret Welsh comedy <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and that it's incredibly fun especially to do old sketches that we haven't that we sort of maybe wrote or, or someone wrote uh, often Alan yeah that's the thing I suppose that Alan Jono I'd say write 
the majority of the sheep's material. Okay. And I, con- you know, concentrate more on the stand-up. Um, but yeah, when we do sketches that we haven't done for about five years, and or that we've been doing for five years, and we come back to them to see how we perform them differently, like a two-minute silly sketch about the Chuckle Brothers can turn into a sort of ten-minute psychodrama with a fight and sort of clowning and st- like we we bring something new to it every time we do it based on how we've changed and grown as performers <laughs> i saw again and again only the first episode but i wish to see more um of friends 2016 yeah, oh, sorry, two, 2016 <laughs> year friends year friends it's the, yeah it's an easy title to tell, tell us about that i really really enjoyed it i put it on facebook this morning saying i feel like a tick because i didn't know about this oh, it's so good um well, it's a web series, this phenomenon of the web series, which I guess is like a mini sitcom usually on um, the internet. Shows like Broad City started as a web series, um, probably loads of others. Anyway, we had a sketch show on BBC Three last year called People Time, and in that show there was Sheeps, um Natasha Dimitri, Ellie White, Jamie Dimitri, Claudia O'Doherty. And um, we were really proud of it. I think in many ways it was a good show. Um, but the BBC didn't take it on for a series, or at least they didn't at that time. I don't know what will happen with it in future. Claudia went off to LA. And the six of us were like just a bit despondent, I think, that we wouldn't, be get, we wouldn't get to work together anymore. And... Um, I think it was it was sort of my idea initially, but it became a group thing very quickly to do a kind of flat share sitcom for a whole year, do one episode a month. And our friend Charlie Perkins, who was at the BBC for a while, she used to work with the Invisible Dot, then the BBC, and now she works for a company called Blink Productions mm-hmm. who make adverts, films, um, yeah, music sh- videos. Friend of the show, Charlie. Is she? Oh, yeah, great. great. I mean, she's great. Um, she she really knows what she's doing and she's working at this company now with lots of talented directors and editors and stuff. Um, so we get together once a month. It's just kind of set in a house and it's kind of, I'd say, I'd, if I had to describe it kind of, yeah, again, quite reductively, like a sort of surreal friends. Um, sometimes quite smart-assed, like the kind of clever... The one thing that I will say that I... I still really like Monty Python for the reason that they do the combination of clever and stupid yes. really well. Yes. And I think I'd hope it's got that in some meager way, got that quality about it. Like sometimes it's really dumb and sometimes it's quite smart. Jono and I are kind of, we sort of had the idea and, and worked it up into a kind of a basic um, format thing. And then the others, we, we kind of met up and talked about what we wanted it to be. And the, Writing processes, we take it in turns to write an episode each. Oh, so that I first episode, first one was me and Jono. Gotcha. Okay, Jono and me, and then uh, Jamie wrote the second. Al wrote March and April, and Ellie wrote May, which is going to come out pretty soon. Really brilliant script um, for May. Um, yeah, and so that's a nice thing. And we all pitch in and get together and say, "Well, I'd like to do this this month," and um, suggest jokes and stuff. But one person kind of helms the, the writing yes. each time. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, because I really noticed the uh, what what I found so kind of delicious about it was the the rhythms of speech that you were capturing. Is, is it written out scripted, or are you? Yeah, but there's a lot of improv. Yeah, okay. and okay. Uh, and it kind of the rhythm is affected, I think, by the improv and the edit as well. So Natasha and Ellie playing these uh, actresses who are desperate for each other to get the part. Yeah. And they're sort of awful. They're terrible human beings. Like, everyone in the house seems awful, apart <laughs> from you, who they all hate. Right, <laughs> Certainly yeah, in yeah. that episode. Yeah. And uh, I, thought the, I thought the rhythms that were captured were brilliant. It really made me laugh. I'm just wondering how... Like, I, I don't know... I get a lot of emails saying, you should talk to sitcom writers, and I don't know that I have the experience or the... Or the the framework within which to ask sensible questions. I think that'd be, that'd be fascinating, though, especially like seeing it as a kind of where stand-up and sitcom writing meet. And I think that would be your that would be a great premise for those kind of interviews, being like, look, this isn't necessarily my field of interest or whatever, but what is what is it about comedy that's shared across these two? So what is it about comedy that's shared across these two? So, like, especially those bits you're talking about, um, Ellie and Tasha's dialogue... Um, we, Jono and I, I mean, we're all quite close now. I'd say there's a kind of family um, quality to the group of us. Um, but Jono and I went to watch Ellie and Tasha's show in Edinburgh, which I think was one of the, um, I mean, there's probably a million shows that are like the undiscovered gem of the fringe or whatever. Yeah. But they were doing it in, I think it's the cinema room in Banshee Labyrinth. Okay. Really nice little room. Just to, And they build it as like, I think they feel quite affected by the pressure of it, even though they're both amazing when the pressure's, too high they sort of struggle with it a bit but they this year they were like or last year they were like look we're just gonna bill it as work in progress do it kind of under the radar and they had this amazing show that was like reminiscent of French and Saunders um, that was them sort of bicker like falling out every two minutes and then hugging and crying and kissing and just like emotionally um, uh, up and down and just really expressive and emotionally really real and compelling but also that really silly um so for that for the rhythm of that dialogue in the episode we just kind of took what they were doing in their um in their live show and that their their double act their live show comes from them both doing kind of characters on stage the difference between stand-up and kind of character or sitcom stuff i guess being that the the audience expect a different rhythm in a live setting um and you've got to do more to I guess it's a fourth wall thing. I guess it's like, do audiences switch off in a live setting if there's if you lose the fourth wall? Uh, I guess they do, but maybe our com is 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 there something changing in the in the comedy scene where you don't have to just do stand up at a at a at a big comedy night? I don't know. <laughs> it's very random. <laughs> now, come on, stay, stay with it. I'm sorry. Um, well, the, the, the question is, I suppose, what's what, what is shared? Between, well, a lot of like stand-ups go on to be in sitcoms, right? Like, um, and uh, there's a new kind of type of show, the kind of Louis show or the Master of None, yeah. the Aziz Ansari show. Um, especially as the Aziz Ansari show, it doesn't really matter that he's a st- He's a stand-up at all. Yes, he's. what does he do? He's, a, he's, he's an actor. An, he's a commercial actor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So I guess, I don't think it's a very insightful point, but I, but I feel like if you can, 
if you kind of know how what's going to make people laugh um then i think you can kind of turn your hand to to any kind of comedy writing if you want to and if you uh have the time and willingness to kind of learn the different techniques of it i think there's something essential um about making people laugh that say for tash and ellie is it's about that i think it's almost always about like being being more honest than people are used to seeing people being honest or being more taking risks in a in a public setting um and i think that can that can create good you can then le- learn how to create good sitcom characters from that or you can be good on stage in front of an audience if you're if you kind of have an awareness of what a a normal i'm doing air quotes trying to do air quotes a normal human being is and then like what do i need to do to change elements of their personality or their character to make them essentially ridiculous and therefore laughable that's kind of the same for a stand up walking on and being like as soon as you walk on stage they see a woman or a man and they expect them to behave like we expect women and men to behave in society and then they start saying things and doing things which um subvert our expectations and hopefully we start laughing the same in a sitcom we see a woman or a man walk into the scene and we just expect them to function you know conduct themselves like human beings do but they don't they say things that are weirder or unexpected and that's when the laughter comes so i think there's something um essential about it across the two things that's yeah that's just about um not being normal in a very controlled way that was a great answer thank you <laughs> it was a no, long we, answer yeah, yeah it was a long answer it was yeah. a great answer so what does when you have written something and watched someone else perform it do what's the difference in experience what's the difference in that kind of is there a sort of feeling of uh authorial i don't know what ownership or is it as it as satisfying um i found the few bits i've done where i've had to like i've written things and then cast people in them um it's you the casting process is like for 2016 year friends the web series thing there's obviously no casting process because we were all going to be in it from the beginning um but for the radio show say there's a casting process and um there's a there's a uh anxiety when you're listening to people do the you're writing over and over again and it's not really singing and you're like is this the fault of the oh it's not good enough the writing only i know how to deliver it in a way that and i can't start telling them how to deliver it um and then there'll be someone somebody comes into the room and they do something that you didn't expect and that's usually when it starts working so with writing for other people i think there's a, an element of sort of putting something out halfway into the dis, into a sort of no man's land and just hoping and waiting that somebody will come and, and meet you halfway and together um it will become good um and the same with like when we give a gave that script to the guys for that january episode like jamie's bit he both thought of new lines and delivered lines in a way we never thought of and we just given him some quite simple not even particularly jokey dialogue and he just turned it into mm. something else so there's a real pleasure in working with people who have a kind of alchemical ability to um take material and just imbue it with something that you never expected or to transform it into something totally different <laughs> Thank you.
So let's talk about what you're doing at Edinburgh this year. In fact, before we do that, you directed Twelfth Night recently. Yes. And on, on actual Twelfth on Night. On actual Twelfth Night, which is the 5th of January. Only uh, Or the 6th of January. Yeah, one night only at that time. Um, that came about because every year for the last few years, I've watched this specific production of Twelfth Night on YouTube. It was directed by Kenneth Branagh in the 80s. It was like an ITV um, play, which you wouldn't get now. Um they just like filmed Shakespeare plays in simple sets. It had like Richard Briers in it, um, Francis Barber, I think. And there's something about that play and this particular production that goes so well with that time of year, January the 5th. I'm not really a dry January person. So although I'm sort of cutting down my some of my worst habits, but January is the one month where I need to drink a lot, you know, and uh, <laughs> the bleak midwinter. And there's something about it's the end of the kind of festive period and you're not quite ready to re-engage with like normal, the normal um, running of life. And so weird, like for me, a kind of weird, lonely, reflective, melancholy time. And this production has a very wintry aesthetic. And the plot of Twelfth Night is that there's a character, or one of the plots, the one that I felt most... Um, uh, excited about was um, there's this character called Toby Belch who's a real drinker and a sensualist and a sort of bon viveur <laughs> and a steward which I guess is a Shakespearean word for like I don't know he's a kind of servant character um, called Malvolio who disapproves of this fellow Toby Belch's drinking and reveling and staying up late and tells him off for it and threatens to kick him out of the house and stuff so Toby Belch and his friends conduct a, a, a prank uh, on Malvolio, which is renowned as, like, it's it's makes Twelfth Night, which is a comedy, into what, a kind of a problem play in Shakespeare, because this, this guy Malvolio is so mistreated and almost turned mad, and he's, like, locked in a dark room at the end that you kind of question, has, has that is that justified? Mm. Uh, anyway, so it's a plot centrally about, like, whether one should curb one's um, hedonistic habits, and so it just felt so perfect for that time of year. I'd watch it every year with a bottle of wine. And then I thought it would be really fun to put that on a really small-scale production next year, just with a group of mates, maybe for charity. And I mentioned it to a couple of people, and before long we had this 600-seater theatre and a cast of brilliant comedians. And Tim Key was playing Toby Belch, and Al Roberts from Sheeps was playing Malvolio. And um, my friend Matt, who... Uh, I was at university with we direct Matt Bulmer. We directed stuff together there. He took on the took the reins directing, and a uh, girl called Isabel David, who's a producer, produced it. Breed Kirby is a great, um, it's technical wizard as well, wizardess or wizard. Um, she did the tech side and did some production. Anyway, so we had this massive show on, uh, made like nine grand for refugee action, and I was not supposed to be there. I was supposed to be in. Australia, Sydney Festival. But because of my injury, mm. I stuck around so I could see the show and stuff. Um, so that went well. And then we got an offer from Latitude to do it there, but we also got an offer from the Spiegel tent on the South Bank um, to do it there on July the 18th. So we're doing it again. And Tim Key has gone to uh, Southeast Asia now to film the new Tom Basden um, sitcom. So I'm playing the Toby Belch Okay. Yeah. Um, and we've also... Lolly Adafobia is in the cast now as well, excitingly. So it'll feel like uh, fresh. Um, and well. how was that? How was that? Um, 
how was the experience of seeing comedians doing actual Shakespeare? Like, how did everyone... Was there a kind of a range of approaches, or was everyone like, hey, it's just Shakespeare, guys? Yeah, well, I think with the cast... We, we jigged around the casting a bit. Um, but I think with the casting, we got um, everybody in the right place to be doing what they do best. So, like, Ellie White, who's a brilliant actor, but is predominantly a, a kind of sketch character comedian, she played the fool. So she was allowed to be, re- like, stupid and, like, yes, mess okay. around and kind of talk to the audience and just disrupt the flow of things because that's what the fool does. Um, my housemate, Joe, uh, he's an actor, first and foremost, a Shakespearean actor, so he took, like, the central straight part. Um, Tim Key's character was quite comic, so he could be um, kind of ridiculous as well but the thing they all did amazingly well was that they took the language and just treated it properly or not that there's a right way to do it but they learned the lines and like spoke them well but the thing we wanted and I think we achieved was to do Shakespeare in a kind of modern with a kind of modern natural rhythm where possible and almost to imbue it with that kind of comic rhythm which you know of like the office and stuff with the little touches and little nuances and not for it to be big and overblown but for it to be kind of subtle and to somehow uh, appeal to modern sensibilities and we set it all like we took out all the language of like duke and sir and lord and sir okay. and all that so that there was no explicit hierarchy among the characters and we set it at like a modern new year's eve party that had gone out got out of hand and it was all they were surrounded by like bin bags and empty bottles and and stuff so yeah the idea was to make it feel like like it felt to me when I was watching this production every January the 5th on my own with a bottle of wine like even though this is set it was written 400 years ago it's exactly what I'm going through in my head right now tonight and to kind of give that to other people was the idea and I think we managed it and we're gonna yeah do it again and what's the show that you're taking to Edinburgh this year Mm. that's a play so this is a play I've written so when I say I'm not doing a new show this year I kind of feel like I am it's just not a stand-up show um, yeah, I've written a play, a two-hander play about a couple in their late 20s, a relationship kind of from start to finish. And um, yeah, it's on at the Assembly Studios, George Square. I don't know if you want me to be plugging it or... No, feel free. Yeah. Plug away. 5.30pm. Yeah. Plug concluded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't count as a plug unless you tell us the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well tell, me, tell me about it. Who's, who's going to be in it? Well, we're casting it sort of at the moment. Okay. I'm going... This afternoon to the so there's a great director called Emily Burns who's it's a kind of I think it's quite comedic but very naturalistic play about a couple um, negotiating their way through this relationship with a an emphasis on gender I think and as a guy not all that clued up on feminism or trying to become more clued up and question like I think for my generation the sort of gender conventions and the kind of expectations about what a relationship is what love is what marriage is how that it becomes a vehicle to get through a human life um it's quite different from how it was for my parents so many things are um the goalposts have shifted in so many ways like we were talking just before we started recording about like buying a house and stuff like that's totally like my attempts to do that will be totally different from what they were for my parents. The idea that you stay together with one person for the rest of your life is not as absolute anymore. And these things kind of come uh, quite starkly to you when you... I, well, to me, like, now I'm in my late 20s, 
relationships aren't just kind of messing around anymore. There are more potential, you know, uh, the stakes are higher and the narrative is potentially longer and more complicated. And it's all the more heartbreaking when things don't work out if you've invested in a a potential future. Um, So it's a play kind of covering those kind of themes and ideas and the director emily is a really smart and and feminist but in a accessible uh way i think um so yeah and given that last year's show contained elements of uh personal i'm not going to call it a breakup show but there was you obviously you talked a bit about you talked a bit about a breakup yeah is this what's the question is there is there a kind of a through line of when you talk about things are more weighted, things are more invested? Is this a particular? I don't want to be too personal here, yeah. but is this a particular relationship that has hit you particularly right. hard? So definitely, the starting point for the writing was absolutely no doubt about that. But what it needs to be and what it is becoming is, if not quite a universal story, but a story that isn't just autobiographical and the characters are starting to kind of have their own I don't know this this sounds really pretentious and it's a new kind of writing for, for me so I don't quite know the correct kind of critical vocabulary but I feel like the characters are kind of gaining their own life and they're like doing their own things and ha- they want different things from say me and say my ex-girlfriend who at one point they might have been slightly inspired by it's now become something apart and when emily's directing it and when the actors come to it with their own stories and their own ideas it's like the thing i was saying earlier about when you write something and you get somebody in and casting and they do something with the script that you never envisioned like i'm only at most a kind of a quarter of this creative process Mm -hmm. so it isn't going to be my my story, my biographical experience. But it is nonetheless going to be a way for me to work out and comment upon my experiences of being in a relationship, having a breakup, being in love and, you know, heartbreak and all of that. So what I like about it that's different from stand-up is that there's a healthy remove. It's a kind of um, a separate space in which I can consider these ideas without feeling like I'm going on stage and talking about my own, you know, reliving my own uh, experience over and over again is there an element of your stand-up where you talk about those kind of personal love perhaps relationship based things a lot of these stand is very very personal is there an element through which talking about that leaves you feeling shriven you know that you go i've got there's a cathartic kind of i've said that there it is it's done and if there is is there less of that feeling when you're writing a play about it and you're no, further step removed i think it's the other way around like there's something about stand-up where partly it's just the board, the sort of boredom that sets in of doing the same thing over and over again. But just you being there on stage every night talking about stuff that maybe happened a year ago doesn't isn't that cathartic for me, and it isn't helpful in if if there's in some way a process of like dealing with an issue or um, a tribulation and then moving on from it. Stand-up hasn't always helped me to do that, whereas this. This, the play I'm feeling like the lingering things from my personal life I'm making sense of and seeing the ironies of seeing the absurdity of giving to the character and working out what the character does with them and there and I think more effectively offloading myself into the into the script than with whereas stand-up just feels like scripting a particular emotion that you have 
at one time and then saying it for like a year, which isn't always that that healthy, I don't think. I think that's absolutely right. Is it healthy to be on stage simulating catharsis? It reminds me of that, um, uh, there's a Charlie Brooker, did you ever read TV Go Home? Yeah. Charlie yeah, Brooker's, yeah. oh God, I love that book. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's cry laughing. And uh, in one of them, he talks about, it's like a night of, it's almost like a night of Limp biscuit, And one of the <laughs> phrases he uses is, you know, a, a, a 30-year-old American millionaire simulates a tantrum on your <laughs> yeah, behalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What an incredible yeah. sentence. Yeah, Throws yeah. a tantrum on your, your behalf. Yeah, no, I wonder if, if slightly stand-up had become a bit like that for me, where probably, like the last show, when I wrote a lot of it, I was in a particular mood, but then I had to, like, pretend to be in that mood every night for, like, a year. Yeah. It was quite hard. So when you were punching the ceiling in Bonfire Night, <laughs> were you pretending to be in a mood? Um, I think I can't exactly remember, but I think I probably was genuinely in a in a in a mood. I don't think I would punch the ceiling if I wasn't feeling angry. And I, I now look back on that as like I just didn't know how to deal with my emotions properly. Like I do feel like I've moved on a lot since then, um, but that might be like because I'm unburdened from the stress and pressure of having to do a new stand-up show. But now. In no context would I punch a wall or kick a wall. I don't think. I haven't for a long time. It might have been partly because of this this injury and the reflectiveness that it's given me, but also just kind of being like, adults don't do that. And um, I, maybe for some people, and maybe for me for a while, it was like, oh, it's like punk rock or something. It's interesting. I mean, I had a phase of like hitting myself in the head with the microphone. And I wouldn't do that now. Just seems absurd. So I think it was struggling to cope with the with the with the pressure of of wanting the of wanting to the show to be going well and feeling like it wasn't. One other tricky one. While we're on uh, tricky ones, sure. In your first show, I remember. I remember. In fact, a couple of years ago, we did a, a gig at possibly Bournemouth University. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember. We had a quick chat. Mm. And um, I was saying how much I'd loved and hung on to... Southampton. So it was Southampton, Southampton. you're right. I was saying that in your first show, how much I had loved and hung on to the phrase, I decided I would not let the toad work squat upon me, squat upon my life, but instead I would use my wits as a pitchfork to drive the brute away. And I may be paraphrased, I may have missed... Drive the brute off. Drive the brute off. I remembered, like, like, I saw that show once and that sentence was like, Mm. what an incredible sentence. And I said... Jesus Christ, what writing? And you said, yeah. yeah, it's Larkin. Yeah, Philip Larkin. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to, I don't know if there is a thing to be covered there, but I do remember at the time going, yeah. oh, Lee, am I like, <laughs> like what, how much of the other stuff of yours that I loved is actually yeah, an yeah, uncredited yeah, yeah, quote yeah. from someone? Interesting. Or is it my fault that I didn't recognise the no. quote, you know, in literary circles, if I was better educated, would I go, would I be in the audience going, ah, oh, Larkin, very good, as opposed to sitting in the audience going, Christ, Liam can write. And you can write. No, I think what's interesting there is that, yeah, the bit that stood out for you of like, as like the best bit of writing was Larkin. And when I'm reading, say, Larkin or other writers I like, I'm just reading with such jealousy and thinking like, could I, can I write this well? Will I ever be able to write this well? And if I, you know, going back to the thing of like, nothing I say has has value, that kind of feeling, like that ad- admiration for another writer can sometimes if you're not careful, turn into a, a complete kind of destruction of your own self-belief. Um, 
so that there's you know so i remember that conversation i remember walking away being like oh yes Stuart's right like maybe have i stolen larkin's have i like plagiarized him almost and i do i'd never plagiarize another comedian i'd never like put another put a joke in that i'd heard a comedian say but i do happily steal little phrases uh from novels and plays and poems and stuff because yeah maybe it's um silly but i think if people spot them they go aha as you say you know they go ah i've spotted an illusion and if they don't spot them then (laughs) (laughs) um but i it's like i think t.s Eliot said something like good poets borrow the best poets steal and uh you know shakespeare nicked all his plots and a lot of his speeches from other writers not that i'm comparing myself to Shakespeare, it's Shakespeare <laughs> <Elliot and> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I think I do enjoy sort of having a magpie approach to um, sort of high literature, high culture, and popping it into stand-up. I like the effects that that creates, having something very poetic next to like a joke about wanking or whatever. <laughs> So thank you to Liam for uh, for letting me uh, see in very close up detail the place from which he fell at his uh, his charming wee flat. Um, and thanks for coming on the show, Liam. I really really enjoyed that. I, uh, I I it strikes me that you are the sort of person who will definitely listen back to this in a worried way. Don't worry, mate. I thought it was great. I thought it was great, and you came across very well. Um, ugh, I, d- I don't know if I like doing that. I don't normally address people directly through uh, earphones, but there it is. Um, let's hope that if Liam did happen to be listening to this, uh, he slash you weren't crossing the road at the time, uh, or indeed falling off something. So, God, I'm being very casual with your horrible accident. I, I wish you a speedy recovery, as do we all. Thank you to Johnny Mounter for editing and uploading the show. Thanks to Tom DL for all his help uh, and his mailing list pro tips. Uh, and thanks to uh, thanks to listener Tony M for some secret business. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you what the secret business is, but uh, a listener has very kindly got in touch and uh, is helping me hatch a little... It's not quite a plot. It's more like a, a sort of a conspiracy but with only one person. Piracy. <laughs> Is that right? Cons piracy? Oh, how strange. Uh, okay, that'll do for now. That concludes the podcast. And if you're still here, thank you for still being here. And um, thanks, man. Loads of you have been uh, saying nice things about what it seems inescapably is called the waffle. I don't... I mean, I'm not wild about that but there it is um someone made me a nice t-shirt saying faff and waffle and i thought oh god is that what i've contributed to the world i mean the drawing was lovely and very beautifully calligraphized and all the rest of it but i thought if you're going to be remembered for something <laughs> it's faff and waffle waff and waffle um that's uh, we we don't get to choose the things for which we are remembered and should consider ourselves lucky no doubt to be thought of in any way whatsoever couple of things I mentioned this preview. It wasn't god-awful, right? You should always tape all your gigs. No, you shouldn't do anything. Anyone says, I always tape all of my gigs because I'm always wedging in at least a tiddly tiny little bit of new stuff. Um, Plus, I suppose the way I write is more to do with coming up with an idea in the moment on stage. I do. Jesus. I was at Top Secret the other night and um, I must have written 10 new jokes on stage. It was nuts. God, it was a good gig. And then, of course, like... Icarus flying too close to the microphone. Uh, then I fell uh, and I did a gig uh, in North London lo- uh, earlier this week. And it just didn't fire. 
It, I mean, I don't think I went on overconfident. I made a little mistake early doors. I, I, there were some people in the front row. All I did was I tried to get them to turn around so they were facing the stage. They'd ordered pizza. I didn't realise until afterwards that that was one of the precepts of the gig is you get pizza in a gig. So I probably slightly internally blamed them for, like, guys, why don't you shut up and have your pizza before or after and then watch the show? I didn't say that. But I, I just, I'm trying not to have too much, I'm trying not to do too much glad handing. Do you know what I mean? I'm trying not to have too much bonhomie these days. It's very easy for my particular skill set and experience to come on and just kind of beam at everyone and win, try and win people over and then, and like us not win people over, and then do the stuff. And what I'm trying to do is for the stuff to work without me needing to breathe this wind into the sail of, of you know, charm. You know, this is a, an obsession of mine. My point is, it could have done with a bit more wind in the sails. It could have done with a bit more charm early doors. I think people kind of were like, oh, he's a bit, he's a bit up himself. And then it just became all of the lightness, all of the froth and the bounce. It all went flum. And I went from having a wonderful beehive to having some very lank, wet hair, performatively speaking. Um, so I've said as much on Facebook. And blow me if my lovely community of friends didn't suddenly rally round. I got some lovely, lovely messages. Shall I tell you some of them? I think I will. I think what inspired them was I said that preview has left me ashen. And I think the word ashen. Um, let's not hashtag ashen. Let's keep going for underscore horse. I'm a fan of that. Uh, at ComComPod with underscore horse, if you're listening. Um, but um, uh, we've... <laughs> Jen Brister, brilliant comic Jen, said, mate, we've all had that preview. And in my case, previews. We forget, but it's part of the dreadful process. Right, guys? Uh, hello. <laughs> That's very sweet. Um... Uh, Roisin Conaty says she had a preview two weeks before Edinburgh that was so bad an elderly woman came up at the end and said do you really have to go is it all booked are you depressed and I said to her next time we do break glass I'm getting Roisin on the show before too long next time we do a, a break glass in case of emergency compilation we can bloody open with that anecdote um, and then uh, more than one person said to me who was the first Dave Taylor Matthews said break glass mate to which I replied but doctor I am grok and I hope you understand that either because you've seen my more recent solo show uh, or you are just up on your comedy stuff. But uh, if you don't, you can do a bit of research. But Doctor, I am Croc. <laughs> and I, I, I made myself laugh, which is exactly why I'm the sort of person who struggles at previews because I'm too busy self-indulging. Um, so people said some really nice stuff. And now my, one of my favourites was Justin Morehouse who commented, heard about this. Mwah, brilliant. I guessed I retroactively worked out that it was the punchline to an old comics joke and uh, uh, was very pleased to hear that. So, you know, I think after the, was it after the Joe Lysett one, I, I said, uh, hey guys, keep turning up. And a bunch of you got in touch and said that you'd had quite emotional responses to that. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, you know, physician, heal thyself, isn't it? I've just got to keep turning up. I will. I did some really good writing the next day. I really did. I, I, you know, motivated by fear rather than, oh, I think I'll tweak that bit that mostly works. I was like, Christ, Christ, I've got nothing. I haven't got nothing. But, uh, you know, they can't all be good, can they? Oh, man. If you were there at that one, sorry, there weren't many. There, it was a, all right, a little, you know, full enough in a small room. But um, it's it's so much better. And that weird thing people say to you afterwards, no, it wasn't that bad. I saw it and it was it was good. It was really good. And you go, no, it wasn't. And you don't want to fit into the it's brilliant or it's shit trap. You don't want to fall into that trap. But at the same time, 
when people go, no, that was good. You're like, you don't understand. That wasn't representative of the thing. That wasn't representative of me, of what I do, of how good the stuff is or can be. It is. It's not representative of how good the stuff is. But equally, you don't want to be that guy when someone goes, I really enjoyed that. And you go, no, you didn't. You're wrong. <laughs> so uh, a trap, a trap, all sorts of traps. Um, watch Todd Barry's Netflix special, Crowd Work. I'm halfway through it at the moment. I'm absolutely loving it absolutely loving it go and check that out he's coming on the show soon so uh you'll be you'll be all revised up um and uh, i feel way less mad than i did i'll just a quick word on the boutros i i you know as you know i i try not to sort of bang on about him too much um but it's been a few weeks and i have thank you in no small parts to my partner being incredible um i have i'm feeling way less mad I made an oblique reference um, in this interview that you've just listened to, uh, well, quite an explicit reference, to occasionally feeling angry with my baby. And I cut it, because I didn't want you to know, but you can know, because you're the, the, the underscore horses. Um, it's such a weird thing to talk about. You feel such a monster for being angry. And bless her cottons, Emily Crosby, thanks to Emily, uh, who, uh, who logged this episode, sent me a really lovely email about it. And uh, and then I went, oh, yeah, uh, good point. I'll cut that. <laughs> she didn't say cut it. She said, listen, you know, don't worry. It's, it's, it's a thing. But so many people got in touch about the Seymour Mace episode and said, thanks for leaving in all the difficult stuff about depression. Maybe I should have left it in. Um, you know, what can I say? I'm, I'm not in a position to give anyone advice about childcare, but it, it has got better. I've kept turning up. There's a lot more turning up still to do. But um, I, I had a few you know you don't just get angry with your baby but when he's been crying you can do you can sing at him for 10 and then poke his tummy in a fun way for the next 20 minutes and then shush him for another half an hour and then after an hour of crying you just you know it's tough man isn't it tough oh here we go I'll tell you about this I found myself collaborating um I, I might do something about this in the show it's occurred to me I haven't sort of turned it into a thought um, turned into more than a thought. Um, some friends of mine came round who are now pregnant and they are due in October. And I started to tell, they were like, so what's it like? I was trying to sort of reassure the guy who's not a naturally baby wanting guy. And the, I mean, he obviously wants a baby, but not in the way, he hasn't been banging on about wanting a baby for as long as I've known him, as I have. Um, and I was trying to say reassuring things. Now, I caught myself doing a thing that people do when you're pregnant, when we were pregnant, um, and yes, I'm including myself in that. I was too. Get over yourself. When we were pregnant, um, this tape's going to run out. I'll try and finish the anecdote quickly. Um, when we were pregnant, we saw someone outside who said to us, oh, who just had a baby. You bump into other people with uh, with pushchairs. And they go, hey, don't worry about it. It's so great. It, don't worry. It's all going to be so fantastic. such a magical time. And then you have the baby and you bump into them again when you've got the baby. And they go, God, isn't it awful? <laughs> you go, what? When were you going to tell me that? I found myself collaborating. I'm now one of those people. My pals were around, and I found myself saying, God, it's hard to begin with, but then, you know, it's a magical thing, and I'm, I've collaborated. Terrible. Terrible. Um, that's everything. If this, I think I've got seven seconds left before the numbers run out. Um, I'm doing a special ComCom Redacted at the Edinburgh Festival. Keep your eyes peeled for that. At ComCom Pod, I'll tell you all about it. Hashtag underscore horse. I bid you good day. Speak to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.